The anti-black racism movement was in the media spotlight in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. While media coverage helped inform citizens and spark global conversations about systemic racism, Brianna Xavier Carter noticed that not all reporting was fair and unbiased. I noticed there was a huge focus on struggle, pain, and violence, rather than deconstructing the systems of white power that were creating it. At the time, Brianna was a recent graduate of the School of Journalism at Ryerson University. She realized that more training was required in order for journalism graduates to understand how to report on racial issues through an unbiased lens. Welcome to Let's Talk About the Internet, a conversation about the future of the internet in Canada. This podcast is part of a partnership between Facebook Canada and The Walrus. We're exploring the future of the internet. I'm your host, Mohit Rajams. Brianna Xavier Carter is a digital reporter for BlogTO. She joins us to talk about how an online social justice movement she led sparked change in Ryerson University's journalism curriculum. Back in May, she discussed these issues at The Walrus Talks at Home, Voices Online. I'll be talking to Brianna more about this, but first, let's have a listen to that talk. Next week will mark one year since the murder of George Floyd, a pivotal moment which sparked a political uprising and started a global conversation about the oppression of Black people. At the time, I was a new graduate from Ryerson School of Journalism, And as a budding young journalist who is also half black, I was glued to screens, analyzing how the media was portraying the anti-black racism movement. I noticed there was a huge focus on struggle, pain, and violence, rather than deconstructing the systems of white power that were creating it. In June 2020, a mass email was sent from the chair of Ryerson School of Journalism about their stance on anti-black racism related to Mr. Floyd's death. The email posed the question of, what can we do better? Upon reading this, the idea came to me. We need education. I felt there needed to be a class that taught about systems of white power in the media and how they work to skew representations of Black people. A study done by Ryerson on diversity in the Canadian media industry found that stereotypical narratives about Black people are often framed in journalism with negative and presumptuous undertones. These stories portray Black people from a place of victimization, having villainous tendencies, and also being crime-related. I envisioned a class where students could learn about how descriptions of young Black men in police news releases can be harmful, or how choosing only white experts for stories dismisses the voices of Black professionals within the same fields. I believed a course like this could teach upcoming journalists on how to write about Black communities that wasn't biasedly centered around tragedy, catastrophe, or struggle. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of important stories about tragedy that can spark change. We all saw that in the case with George Floyd. But we see this narrative recycled in mainstream media over and over again, which can skew representations of Black identity for non-Black audiences and devalue individual experiences. I knew of so many other stories about Black empowerment, excellence, and celebration that I saw the mainstream media was skipping over. So I decided to connect with a few of my friends from school with the idea of such a course and things moved quite quickly. Myself, Sarah Jabakanji, Rosemary Akpan, and Tiffany Mongu spent countless hours over FaceTime calls putting together a petition on change.org. We knew we needed more than just our words to demand for a course about Black communities in the media. We shared the petition on the evening of June 9th, 2020 with our school peers through Twitter. 
As it began to be shared through the Ryerson community, it caught the attention of affluent Ryerson alumni who said they'd actually be better at their jobs if they took such a course. From there, legacy journalists like Anne-Marie Medawig from CTV Your Morning and Sri Pradkar from Toronto Star showed their support, which added to the popularity. The petition grew exponentially overnight, reaching up to 1,500 signatures within 24 hours, and it continued increasing. Most of the major media outlets caught on to this movement, and we began doing TV interviews on CBC, CTV, and Global News. The heads of Ryerson Journalism witnessed the power this petition had and decided to meet with our group to make this course into a real thing. After a week of planning, Ryerson announced that reporting on race, the Black community, and the media would be taught by Eternity Martis that upcoming fall. Normally, it takes up to two years for a course to be put into the school's curriculum, but the urgency of the online petition made Ryerson Journalism see the value it could bring to the program. This course was built from a singular idea, which then grew through an online platform and manifested into positive impacts offline too. Many of the Black students who took the course last fall told us how they could finally see themselves succeeding in the industry. They were so happy to be studying other Black journalists who went on to have successful careers, despite the industry being a historically white space. The professor for the course, Eternity Martis, was invited to lead a seminar on anti-Black racism at the Toronto Star. I happily attended the session, which was a micro version of some of the topics taught in our course. Lastly, our petition sparked the interest of other J schools, including Carleton University, who wrote letters proposing for a similar class to be taught there. The movement I led proves how powerful social media can be to educate people on different life experiences and unites us together about how to bring concrete change. I am proud of the accomplishments this course had, and I hope it continues bringing meaning to future journalism students in years to come. That's Brianna Xavier Carter speaking at the Walrus Talks at Home, Voices Online. She joins me now to talk more about the power of advocating for change online. Brianna, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mohit, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I mean, there's so many great things that you cover in the talk. Let's dissect it a little bit. Why did you decide to use the platform change.org for your social justice movement? Yeah, so at the time, this was summer of 2020, Change.org was a platform that was being used for a number of different other social justice movements, particularly pertaining to the BLM movement. And it seemed to have been working for a lot of other people. I know that, you know, just even being on socials at the time, it seemed that there was a petition going around for everything. So it was already easily recognizable by anyone using social media. So that's kind of what geared myself and my the other people who helped me create the program to use that platform to communicate our message. But I also feel like the format of the platform in general was something that really helped us to push our message forward. You know, we were able to take the time and actually write out all of our goals and what we wanted to see from the school. And that way people were able to read it for themselves and actually see what we were trying to do with our movement and be able to connect with that on their own, right? And then on top of that, you also have the opportunity for comments to come in on that platform. So people are actually able to share their own opinions as to why they wanted to sign our petition, why they felt it was something important to be engaged in. And then other people can see that and be able to reply themselves. So really in all, I think change.org was a great platform to use because it was something that united people in a way that maybe other petition platforms might not have. 
and might have not have been as recognizable uh, as others at the time. Mm-hmm. In the like the petition you discussed in your talk, for example, is a great update to how social media can be used as a tool, especially to unite people and bring concrete change. What excites you about how others are using their voices online to form communities and advocate for change? I think the internet is is a good place. It has its ups and downs, but it's especially when it comes to social change. I think there's this amazing opportunity to really find your niche and to figure out what you're passionate about and connect with others who share that same vision or values. You know, it's also exciting to know that that we do have the opportunity to use our voices in whatever way that may be. So, you know, if you're somebody who loves video and feels like your message can be better communicated through filming yourself or filming others, that's a platform that you can take advantage of. If you are a writer and you feel like your words is something that can communicate serious instances of change, then, you know, you can go forth and do that. And really, you're able to just kind of put it out there for the world to see and hope that others will connect and communicate back to you. And then in that sense, it's exciting because you're able to form movements, you're able to form groups, you're able to form signals and symbols that only belong to you. And that can help further push your message or like your power of change. I want to very quickly ask you about when the hope isn't rewarded, though. So many people do want to drive social change and make a difference, but some people don't have the uh, wherewithal necessarily to use social media in ways that can gather a big audience or amplify their voices. What do you say to people that want to drive the social change but don't necessarily have an acumen for social media? You know, you want to get clear on what your message is and what you're actually asking of people. You know, whether that's you're making a video about it, you're writing a petition about it, or you're going around and asking people out in the street to sign a petition, let's say. You need to like be clear on your message and align that with some kind of goal. Because no matter what platform you're using, that's going to be the key thing that's going to grab people and want to connect them to your story or to whatever you're trying to push, right? In that sense, I think even if you aren't social media literate, I think that it's important to consider it because it may be a tool that can help elevate your message. For us, we were doing this during a pandemic. I mean, there wasn't really any chance for us to actually go out and maybe communicate our message through traditional means. Like if we were in school, let's say at the time and we were still in class, I'm sure maybe that might have been something that we would have geared more towards. But because we're in a pandemic, everybody was at home. Most people were spending time online. That's kind of the avenue that we went with. So aside from that, though, like, I would also say that it's important to understand what kind of audience you're trying to deliver your message to. Mm -hmm. So depending on whatever topic you're trying to push, is your audience even online? Does your audience know how to use Instagram or TikTok? And if they don't, how can you be able to shift your emphasis to get that message to them clearly and quickly, right? You mentioned the importance of clarity in your message. What advice would you have for someone who would like to drive social change by using the power of their voice online? Because I think you allude to the fact that many people bring passion first, but you know you have to be clear about what you're actually asking from people. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to being intentional about making social change, you know, some of the points that I brought up before, so making sure you're clear on your message, aligning that with some kind of goal, 
choosing a platform that's going to help you elevate your message, identifying your audience once you have that goal, and then being mindful of why your audience should help you reach that goal. Why do they care? And what's the follow-up too, right? Yeah, like what's the follow-up to that? Um, How is this affecting them and their background or how does this connect to them? So for us, I'll just use us as an example. Our message wasn't just to Ryerson University, how it was in summer of 2020. Our message was to current students, alumni, professors, teacher assistants, whoever had any kind of connection to Ryerson journalism, whatever that may be. Everybody could see the potential for a course like this. And that's why they were able to connect to it. Because at one point, they were in the school, they did go through the curriculum, they graduated through it. And in that sense, they could connect to seeing a reality of a course like this being implemented, right? I will mention too, though, you know, some advice to somebody who might be wanting to start a social movement or ignite social change in their community. I think it's really important to be mindful of your digital footprint. And when I say that, I'm not saying that you should be careful in like your words or like tiptoe around the message that you're actually trying to communicate. What I mean is that when you're putting yourself out there and you're being vulnerable in your message, especially when it's something that you're super connected to or super passionate about, there is always going to be people that are going to want to tear you down. And because you care about what you're speaking on so much, you're going to want to react in the natural way that you would. But the best piece of advice that I would give to somebody who, you know, maybe gets a nasty comment or maybe gets some discouragement is to just maintain your composure and keep clear with what your focus is and know that regardless of people, you know, maybe trying to undermine whatever you're you're pushing, there's always going to be supporters around you that agree with what you're talking about and will actually help you move there. And and that's excellent because it's important for people to understand that it's a two-way street, right? In some ways, uh, people that you're trying to mobilize might turn against you. And also, I think it's important, uh, Brianna, you mentioned something very interesting is with digital footprints, you have to remember also, it makes you think twice about what you're supporting and to what level. But you also did mention backlash and the back and forth that can't happen. I want to ask you about the backlash that women journalists and journalists of color have received while both covering and speaking out against issues of social justice and racism. Can you talk more about those issues and any personal experiences that you've had if you feel comfortable doing so? You know, during during our work on the petition and trying to get the course implemented, a lot of the times I was personally undermined for speaking out just because I don't appear to people as being uh, half black, I am. (laughs) But a lot of the times I appear to people as being um, ethnically ambiguous. And so in a sense, you know, I was talking passionately in a lot of these interviews and a lot of, you know, even with Ryerson about why it would be important to have a course for black students like this. And, you know, a lot of the times I would get private Instagram messages, like on my personal account, or just anywhere really that I was present online of people just trying to tell me that I shouldn't be talking about this, that I don't have any authority to speak on this. And I think in that sense, you know, anyone else, any other journalist, whether you're a female or a person of color or both can understand that this is inevitable with being in the public eye. And it's, it's upsetting to know that it's a reality. But the question is, like, how do we move around it to be able to still speak our truth. We can't let people who are sending us these things stop us from from pushing forward our message. 
people online are always going to try and undermine what you're going to say. So especially if like they go to your page and they, it's clear that you identify as a woman or it's clear that you have a strong tie to your cultural identity or your religious identity or your ethnic identity, people are going to use that to tear you down because we were never taken seriously throughout history. You know what I mean? So um, there's still that constant battle, that constant uphill battle that it shouldn't exist, but it does. And like I said, it's how can we move around that to to verify our knowledge and our truth? Because what we're saying is is important. It is a value and it should be heard. Now, I do want to ask you, though, you're a graduate of journalism school. Do you ever worry that not enough space is being made for the amount of stories that need to be told in the various voices that you've started to uncover? Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a concern. And when you mentioned that, Mohit, it reminds me that, you know, stories that are being told, everything has to get approved by somebody that's higher up. There's always going to be somebody higher up that's directing you or guiding you as to what kind of story you should tell, what angle you should take, whether you should even do the story in itself. And this is a concern that we brought up through our petition process in saying that, you know, we wanted to see people of color being hired as professors, but specifically black professors. And the reason for this is that, you know, we need more black people in figures of authority when it comes to newsrooms and mainstream media companies in general. And the reason for this is because when we have people of all different backgrounds and all different types of experiences, born in different places, different family values, different upbringings, you're able to then have a diverse set of knowledge and ideas coming through. When people at the top are all the same in terms of like their upbringing, their background, their values, that is then translated into the types of stories that are being put out. And then, you know, it's kind of like a domino effect where it's like, then it reaches that type of audience that only wants to read that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's also concern of, well, how will audiences take it? You know, we've been doing such and such for so long. How can we just switch things up and have our company still be successful or still, you know, be in place? But yeah, I think there definitely needs to be a shift in what kind of editors are being hired on, publishers, editors in chiefs. All of this is a trickle effect and comes down to the reporter or whoever is actually putting out the content. And that can help to diversify what kinds of stories are being told. You've been able to do quite a bit at such an early stage in your career. What do you feel as a graduate from journalism school, what do you wish you were better prepared for? I wish I was better prepared for how to report on social change in general. I kind of wish that there was less of a focus on like how to report on current events and more like how to communicate shifts in thinking of society. I do wish that there was more of a focus on how to create a working relationship with sources um, instead of just using them for transactional information. But then kind of going back to the previous question you asked me, Mohit, I do wish that I was better prepared on how to be a journalist while also being present online. Your ideas, your thoughts, you yourself, your photos, everything, it's all out there for people to see. And if you put out something that others don't necessarily agree with, there is a chance that, you know, there will be backlash that is faced. And I just don't think there was enough resources put together or like scenarios explained to us as to how we should deal with this, especially pertaining to like our personal lives and like mental health, right? Because yes, we're all journalists, 
This is all a job that we do. It's a job that we enjoy. But at the same time, we're human beings. And I just feel like that that dual thinking wasn't talked about enough or wasn't discussed enough. Right. And I, I also think that with reference to that, what was not discussed enough at a corporate level is what crisis management sounds like and crisis public relations sounds like and how to address versus ignore and block and filter. I remember for the longest time, I'd get frustrated when I'd see reporters just miraculously tweet out, you know, call for this and call for that and think to myself, well, you haven't responded to people who have tweeted responses in the past. So why are you going to assume that all of a sudden people are just going to flood your inbox because you have a call for a source? And so I, I do, I 100% agree there. It's an ever-changing, you know, mosaic of way people ways people communicate. And I think that we need to be a little bit more prepared. Uh, we need to have a workforce that's better prepared for how many different inputs there really are in their job. So what can media companies do to support their employees who receive hateful comments online? Yeah, I think whatever media company you're working for, they play a huge role. And, you know, they have a responsibility to protect you, especially when you're getting hateful feedback or hateful comments on something that you put out that's attached to them, right? Or that was assigned to you. You know, I can talk about an experience where, you know, I was really fresh out of school. I was working at the Star. And I wrote a story about a specific protest that happened. We were planning to write the story of an angle to, you know, talk about this protest and how many people were actually there. But there was also like this 40-year history behind the reason for the protest that my editors were like, it's important, sum it up, but that isn't the point of the story. So that's exactly what I did. And in response, you know, I got a lot of hateful feedback for the fact that I didn't touch on enough of that history. And that's completely valid. But I think that when it comes to how companies can protect you, using that example, the company I was working for at the time was able to actually go into my accounts and block certain people, or they were able to go into on their social accounts and have them blocked from sending anything hateful anymore. But then, you know, they also were really supportive in telling me as to how I can set up my own socials to make sure that I'm protected, blocking certain keywords on Twitter or using certain words in email addresses to just go to spam. Because at this point, it was just an overwhelming amount of people. Everything that they said was valid, but there was nothing that I could do in my control to change anything because that's what I was assigned. That's, that's how it happened. And they wouldn't have any knowledge of how that went. But I think too, like I always really try and emphasize the aspect of mental health. I think that when you have an employee who's dealing with, you know, an outrage of hate online, companies really need to be mindful of the fact that this is going to affect them personally and their mental health. A lot of the time there's like this expectation where it's like, oh, this is the reality or in the public eye. This is kind of what you get for being in your position. But at the same time, it's like those things can be really hurtful. And so I think companies need to be there for their employees, checking in and being present with your employees and asking them like, hey, is there anything you need from our end? Do you need time off? Sometimes unplugging and just completely getting away from the online world after something like that happens is a really good way to disconnect because then you're able to come back stronger and you're able to kind of like rehash your thinking that isn't blend it in with emotion or shock or anxiety from seeing a bunch of comments or a bunch of hateful things being said towards you. So I think mental health is a huge aspect that's involved in that. Well, you also bring up another point from that whole thing, which is the idea that remember a lot of people that are now your managers and superiors, 
this conversation wasn't prevalent when they were coming up and, and experiencing things. So they're probably dealing with their own set of adjustments. So you, br- you bring up the fact that is that it's a give and take relationship. I think there's a, a, a market or a new generation of journalists that have to educate as well as to the potentials for wh- how this can harm rather than just go along with it and block people. So anyway, you and I could do an entirely different podcast about that, I'm sure. Um, let's consider a hypothetical scenario in 30 years from now, when we look back at how our society consumes news about race in 2021, how do you think future generations will view the era we're currently in? I think future generations will look back and really see this year and, you know, these past two years as a point of critical change. A lot of people online I've seen are comparing this time in society to like the 60s, you know, when a lot of of social change was happening then. But I think also future generations will look back and just see that this is just barely the beginning of actually making that change happen. I think that this is just the starting point for people to really voice their opinions and really voice their truth. There's so much opportunity for people to really express themselves in whatever way that may be and whatever identity they may have, you know, regardless of of one's cultural background, sexual background, religious background, gender background, whatever that may be. And so I think that future generations will look back, see how all of these different identities are coming out and understand the value of them and why they're valuable. And I do hope that 30 years from now, we will see mass change in that sense. Well, I mean, you bring up so many great points. And what's extremely inspiring about this conversation, Brianna, is that we are just at the cusp of starting to see some great things happen. And if leadership like you continues to be as passionate about this industry and about seeing change, I'm quite, quite optimistic about where we're headed. So thank you for joining us today, Brianna. Thank you so much, Mohit, for having me. And yeah, it was really great speaking with you. Brianna Xavier Carter is a digital reporter at BlogTO. You can find out more about her work by following her on Twitter. Thank you for listening to episode two of Let's Talk About the Internet, a podcast for Facebook Canada produced by The Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Thank you to our producer, Jason Herterick, who put together this episode. If you liked this episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and share it with a friend. We'll be releasing a new episode in two weeks. 